Welcome to the first episode of Generation 9-11. I'm Brian Kirsch, and each episode I will be a co-host along with former FDNY chief Richie Allies, who is now an advocate for the 9-11 community with the Barish McGarry Law Firm. We want to help tell the stories of the people who have been affected by the toxic air in Lower Manhattan in the immediate aftermath of September 11th. Richie will seek to inform everyone so that you understand you may have options in terms of making sure your health is taken care of. On this week's episode, Richie talks about his story, including his time as a firefighter on September 11th, 2001, and what he has been doing since he retired from the FDNY to help educate people about the Victim Compensation Fund and the World Trade Center Health Program. Richie, thanks for being here. How are you feeling about launching your own podcast? I'm very excited. I'm uh, very passionate uh, about the uh, cause in the 9-11 community and getting the, the word out to uh, 425,000 uh, people that were impacted and exposed to the uh, toxic uh, debris over the nine-month period, which was our nation's largest search, rescue, and recovery operation. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career? Sure. I was. Uh, I came up through the ranks in the New York City Fire Department, uh, rose to the rank of uh, Deputy Chief, and uh, retired in uh, in 2016. Uh, at the, the time of uh, September 11th, I look at my career as divided before 9-11 and after 9-11. But on 9-11, I was in the rank of uh, Battalion Chief in uh, Battalion 5-8. My office was in a firehouse in Canarsie, Brooklyn, and had worked uh, 24 hours the day before uh, September 11th, and so I was still in my office the morning of, and as the events unfolded, uh, the fire department instituted a total recall, and we were all transported, and I was on scene literally 20 minutes after the second collapse, and that's where it all began for me. I was gonna ask, you know, you, you got the call that morning. You, you were in Brooklyn. You came over the Brooklyn Bridge. Can you share some of your memories? You know, coming across the bridge, making your way to the World Trade Center. Was when did you arrive on scene? Well, it was uh, so I was in my office. Uh, I'd had a very busy night before, so I was in no rush to get home. And uh, we had the TV on in the, in the chief's office. Uh, the events were unfolding. Initially, it sounded like it was just a small commuter plane that had crashed. Nothing unusual that had happened before in the city. But as time went on and events unfolded, we realized that uh, it was quite uh, another situation that we were under attack. So uh, the fire department uh, instituted a total recall. I was uh, in, in Canarsie, Brooklyn at the time. I was transported to Brownsville where my division was, the 15th Division. We were all put together in groups, uh, boarded New York City buses, and were transported uh, to the scene. I had the advantage of having communications. So, so the city got buses for first responders in other boroughs to get you got to get as many people as they could yeah, to yeah. Lower Manhattan. Yeah, there's over 10 divisions in the in the New York City Fire Department and each division has a mustering site so uh, the city got buses there to to transport us uh, all. 
So, uh, and, and, and thank goodness we had advantage of uh, having the communications because uh, I understood a lot of the things that were going on while we were still in Brownsville, uh, the first building had collapsed which was a you know a traumatic situation for all of us in, in thinking, understanding the, the loss of civilian life, but also the loss of uh, our own members. And in the process of being on the, on the bus and going, we got in the other report that the second tower had collapsed. And it's funny how your mind works because uh, you can think you're prepared and you know, once on scene now, uh, I understood, so I didn't have to deal with the shock of these two towers no longer there. But it's like your, your mind doesn't catch up to what your eyes are seeing. And people always ask me, what was your first initial thought? I said it was, it was almost, I said it was very loud, but in my mind it's very quiet. It was almost like a snowstorm, that peaceful kind of calm, the debris in the air, it was all white the dust. The perfect example that comes to my mind is, have you ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Yes. So as soon as they're about to land on the beaches, yes. I, I think I remember the set, the audio just completely cutting out because it, you know, there, there are bombs going off, there are you know, bullets flying past your head, but yes. you, it's, just, it's almost like you get transported to a different reality. You do, you do. Uh, people often ask me, well, wh what, did you, what did you do? I mean, how did you, did you grasp the significance of everything that was going on? And I say no, uh, because we're trained in the, in the fire department to do our job. So without realizing what was going to happen, that we weren't really going to be able to find anyone, this became a search and rescue operation. And we immediately went to the task of searching for and rescuing uh, uh, people. And would you say that the memories, of the, is that ingrained in your mind forever, like are those images, is that something that you still deal with? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do, I do, and uh, good, good that you should mention uh, deal with. Um, what, I've, what I've learned over the years in the uh, amount of uh, PTSD in the 9-11 community, I would say that probably 90% or more of the people that have an illness a physical illness that they're dealing with, they also deal with, uh, with PTSD. I fortunately uh, don't. Um, I thank God I have the capacity to compartmentalize. Um, I do get flashbacks at particular times when something comes up, when uh, a, a close friend that, that I lost, the name is mentioned, and you know, I kind of I dwell on it a little bit. Uh, I'm also at the 9-11 Memorial Museum a lot for a lot of different events. I also uh, teach high school students uh, there about the, about the day and, and, the, and the years past. So uh, there's constant reminders for me, and, and maybe that is a good way for me to, uh, to, to let it out. And it's not therapy without it's, needing to yeah. go talk to somebody. You get to talk to a lot of people throughout your, your yes. day. Yes, um, yes. When you, when you meet with these students, um, not necessarily students that were, uh, you know, in Lower Manhattan on 9-11, but students today. Do you feel like you're teaching them something that never really happened? Like, they don't, they don't have any recollection of 9-11. Yes, yeah. The, uh, now, I've done this for, uh, for uh, several years, and this last year was the first time I actually had a uh, classroom of uh, juniors and seniors in high school that were not alive on September 11, 2001. And I compared the events of that day 
to when I was their age to Pearl Harbor, the beginning of World War II. Now, I wasn't alive, obviously, but I was being taught about World War II and the significance of what Pearl Harbor meant. When you put it in that kind of context, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to them. I know, you know, in today's world, there's much to be taught in, uh, in schools. I don't think that the high school agenda has enough time to adequately uh, prepare the students or teach the students about all of the background leading up to September 11th. But in this classroom setup, I can at least give them the geopolitical forces that were in play that caused this event and everything that has transpired uh, since then because it wasn't just a one-day event because as I uh, advocate in the 9-11 community, this is something that uh, myself and a host of other people are dealing with on a daily basis. So that being said, you talked about advocating. Now that you are retired from the FDNY, what are you up to these days? Yeah, when I, I left the, uh, the fire department, I went to work for uh, Michael Barish, a managing partner of Barish and McGarry. I'm the director of 9-11 Community Affairs. And that position gives me a lot of latitude. Michael's a, a great advocate for the community. I speak to various groups uh, across the country. There's so many different groups of people that were exposed and impacted by the events and, and the exposure to the, to the toxic debris. And don't forget that the federal government had, had assured everyone that the air was safe to breathe and consequently uh, contaminated a population pool of over 425,000 people. That includes responders, military personnel, and everyone else who lived or worked in the, in the lower Manhattan area. So you are an advocate for people who were in lower Manhattan on 9-11. Uh, you know, most most of the people that you advocate for have gotten sick. Uh, are people that are most likely to get sick from their time at Ground Zero on 9/11 or Lower Manhattan on 9/11? Did you get sick? Yeah, I uh, I'm a skin cancer survivor. Uh, skin cancer is uh, one of the most common. It's the most common cancer, and now it has usurped all of the other illnesses in the 9-11 community. It's the number one uh, illness, physical illness that people are uh, dealing with. But to go back to your uh, advocacy, uh, the reason why I am such an advocate is that the last nine years of my career, I was uh, uh, an elected position in the fire officers union, so I was the legislative and political director for the fire officers, which I began that term in, in 2007. And that was the beginning of the real fight for the 9-11 uh, Health and Compensation Act. Uh, Detective Jimmy Zadroga, who passed away in 2006 and was the first confirmed post 9-11 related death, uh, he died in 2006 of pulmonary fibrosis, which is an insidious disease that basically suffocates you. But we were battling with the federal government and with the city of New York, actually, as far as, uh, you know, what caused his death. And uh, his family got an autopsy and when they opened up his lungs, they found ground glass, benzene, heavy metals, chromium, plastics, asbestos, and this was the toxic brew, and that forensic evidence is what we used to get the, the law passed. So in 2010, we got the, uh, the James Adroga 9-11 Health and Compensation Act passed. It had a couple of flaws. One was that it was only for five years, uh, number two, it didn't cover all of the illnesses, especially the, the cancers. 
So after further research, uh, cancer was added as one of the covered illnesses in 2012. But because the law was only good for five years, we had to go back to Washington in 2014 and fight to get the, the law extended. We were successful, and at the end of uh, 2015, the federal government extended the uh, World Trade Center Health Program. It put that permanently in place until the year 2090. And then the Victim Compensation Fund, which is the monetary component to the law, was extended for another five years. So the quest didn't end. I had now I had left the, the union and now working at the, the law firm, again, continued to lobby and advocate in Washington. And last year, 2019, we got the Victim Compensation Fund extended permanently too. So those two pieces of legislation that are joined by one, the World Trade Center Health Program, where anyone that was exposed to the toxic ducts and can prove that uh, they are enrolled in this, in this health program, and then the Victim Compensation Fund, where the government provides monetary compensation for anyone that has developed a physical illness as a result of their exposure to 9-11 toxins. And I want to make clear, this is, that's what this podcast is going to be about. We, we want people to not only hear the stories of people who have you know, become sick and have had to look towards these programs to help them, um, and they get what they do. They get what they deserve. What's due to them? Uh, that's what this podcast is about. And you've done a lot of traveling around the state, around the country. Uh, can you tell us about some of those recent trips, uh, specifically? I know you've gone to D.C. recently, like you just mentioned, but also uh, some upstate trips, upstate New York trips. Yeah, um, been upstate to uh, various National Guard groups. Uh, the the military personnel are a unique group because many of these individuals who were in the Guard were activated. 9/11 uh, responders are also uh, combat veterans that were deployed overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan. When they get sick or injured, uh, they're treated by the the VA hospital, but. The VA only treats them for things that they are responsible for due to their overseas deployment. And unfortunately, uh, the 9-11 responders that are dealing with a host of those illnesses aren't really informed about this other government program, the World Trade Center Health Program, that they're entitled to. So I've made it my job to, to go to these various groups. I was up in Buffalo, spoke to a large contingent of uh, of uh, National Guardsmen there, uh, Rochester, been to uh, Utica, uh, across the country actually in, in many states. So we're always uh, reaching out to our, uh, our, our military. I, I think that's really important to know because this isn't just first responders. Uh, something that we're going to talk about on, on the next episode is this affected an entire uh, an entire part of low, of Manhattan, and everybody knows how big Manhattan is, but a, a very specific part of lower Manhattan. But it's not just the people who live there, who work there. People traveled from across the country to help. Sure. Uh, yeah, it was a, a tremendous volunteer force. People who came from all walks of life came, came to New York. But specifically, uh, law enforcement agencies across the country uh, sent, uh, sent their troops down. Uh, fire departments across the country sent their troops down. FEMA, there's uh, urban search and rescue teams that were here for uh, two weeks because these groups are specifically trained for search and rescue. So once there was no longer a, a life hazard, they are removed. 
but consequently all of them had the most significant exposure being right on top of that from the night of 9-11 for that, that two-week period. So I've, I've spoken to many of them and even FEMA realized that they had dropped the ball and not sharing the information with a lot of these uh, urban search and rescue uh, troops. These are the their cream employee, of the crop. Their employees. Their employees, yes. Yeah, their employees. So... Uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll get into that much more in uh, in future episodes, but I think this was a good opportunity to introduce you to our audience and to kind of just, again, plug the programs that are available to people who either volunteered their time or just happened to be where they were living, where they were going to school. Um, and so I want to thank you for being here and uh, and we'll speak to you next time on Generation 9-11. I want to thank Richie for joining me in person here at 40 Lex Studios. I hope this gave you some insight into what we are looking to do here on Generation 9-11. Join us again next week, and don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast. If you have any questions or maybe an idea for an upcoming episode, reach out to us at generation911 at outlook.com. That's generation911 at outlook.com.